drinking umber wine in Venice, the rules for ordering steak in Florence, and Jewish Roman cuisine. This week, it's the best of Italy. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies at DestinationEatDrink.com and on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. This is the place where we talk about the cuisine of the world, and this week it's all about Italy. But before we do that, if you like listening to the podcast, could you support the show with a small contribution? A few bucks would really help. Just go to DestinationEatDrink.com and click on the Contribute button. Thank you so very much. This week, we're revisiting some of my favorite conversations about great Italian cities and food. Everyone wants to go to Italy, so we're talking Cicchetti in Venice, Tuscan wine in Florence, Jewish cuisine in Rome, and much, much more. Okay, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Monica Cesarato is a food blogger, cooking instructor, and tour guide in Venice. She talks about Italian contradictions and why drinking wine was safer than drinking water in the city. I've been to Italy in the summer occasionally, and I'll, it'll be hot. It'll be really hot outside, and I'll still see men with these scarves wrapped all the way around their necks. I'm like, And people will tell me, don't go outside. You can't go outside without your neck wrapped in a scarf. I'm like, it's 90 degrees out there. <laughs> No, I know, I know, I don't tell me about it. I live in the I lived in the UK for a long time, so I kind of got rid of a of a side. In fact, when, you know, when I drive around with Italian friends, it's like oh. <laughs> when I go around with American English, it's windows open like Felman Louise, you know, way. <laughs> so it's yes, but that's Italians for you. We're so full of contradictions, but that's what you all love about us, isn't that's it? That's true. That is so true. <laughs> Let's talk about the food of the uh, of the region, and I think one of the most interesting parts about uh, Venetian cuisine is the Venetian tapas called the cicchetti. Okay, so first of all, just want to clarify something. Uh, until twelve years ago. Nobody but Venetians knew what chicchetti were because mm. I remember when I first started doing what I do, and that is uh, food blogging, talking about, you know, uh, cooking and uh, taking people around uh, in the chicchetti places. When I first started to propose my tours, nobody was booking because nobody knew what it's all about. <laughs> so I had to kind of educate people to what it is. So chicchetti are actually very, uh, very old traditions from Venice, okay? Uh, they are small little, they're not tapas, okay? Let's make this clear. They're born at the same period, but they're born for different reasons and they're different things. Uh, there are small little snacks that you usually take with a glass of wine that is called a ombra. Uh, ombra is called like this because uh, people used to stand in Samar Square selling the wine underneath the church tower. To keep the wine cool, they used to move a stall with a shade of a church tower. So they used to say, andiamo a bere all'ombra del campanile. Let's go and drink in the shade of a church tower. Mm. With this small glass of wine that is usually red or white, you do not get to pick the type. It usually is house wine, okay, but very good house wine. 
you usually Venetians are very well known because they, they had to drink water and wine all the time because the water wasn't safe to drink in Venice because of course Venice doesn't have uh, uh, fresh water okay He's, he had to get his fresh waters from uh, the rivers so uh, or it was a raining water and of course he could get easily contaminated so to make it safe to drink Venetians used to mix it with wine because the wine kills the bacteria but you, as you can imagine if you drink water and wine all day long you do tend to get a bit tipsy you know so we would have had a lot of uh, leaning tower of pizzas in Venice <laughs> and very happy Venetians okay so they had to find a solution. So pretty soon everybody realized that uh, one way not to get sleepy, drowsy and so on was to associate a small bite to eat every time you had a small glass of wine. In fact, chicchetto, the singular of chicchetti, comes from the Latin chicus, that means small. Originally, they weren't what we have today because now they're very fancy. You know, you have a crostini, you have all really fancy stuff up. Originally, it would have been brain, liver, a little bit of polenta with a little bit of anchovies, a little bit of an egg with a bit of anchovy. Uh, you know, just very simple, poor people food. The change has happened in the last uh, six, seven years when chicchetti start to become famous. And the people selling the chicchetti realized that uh, tourists weren't so adventurous. So they wouldn't go for brain, liver, tendons and stuff like that. So they start to adjust it uh, and make it a bit more palatable and new ones. So you have a traditional ones that like a sardine sour, sweet and sour sardine or bacala mantecato that is a mousse of uh, dry cod that are traditional and they go back a long time. But now you have a lot of new types that are a bit more, let's say, modern and um, easy to take. <laughs> Tony Mazzaglia is the founder of Taste Florence, a food tour company in Tuscany, and she's an expert on Tuscan food. She tells me about the rules of ordering and eating traditional Florentine steak. If we're talking meats and we're talking Florence, I guess we can't forget about talking about a, a Florentine steak because, you know, this is what Americans know about Florence because it's got the name Florentine steak. Um how, how would you experience that if you were a visitor coming to Florence? The Florentine steak when you're here as a student, like I didn't have it when I was here as a student because I couldn't afford it. <laughs> um, so I didn't really experience it until, and then I couldn't, ex I couldn't eat it when I was here in my early 20s. Um, so it's only been really the last, in my adult life, that I've been enjoying the Florentine steak. And otherwise, you, you wait till your parents come and they take you out to dinner. Um, <laughs> <Right>. But it's, because <laughs> it's an investment. It's, it's generally going to weigh at least 800 grams, usually even a whole kilo, um, so 1,000 grams, um, wow. which is 2.2 pounds if you don't do metric. Um, or, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot. And um, basically, um, it's, it's not meant for eating by yourself. But if you, you know, there's a lot of things to know about and to learn about when you're coming to Italy in general. And then the Florentine steak on top of that, even most Italians don't know the rules of the Florentine steak. But um, it's going to be served pretty red inside. It shouldn't be blue, but it's, it's not going to even be medium. It's going to be pretty red. Um, and it's on the bone. It could weigh 800 grams. It could weigh, uh, 2000 grams, depending on, on, you know, how far down the back they go. And, and if you've got the counter filet, you know, it all depends, but it's rarely going to weigh less than 800 grams. So it's meant for sharing and any restaurant that's 
a good restaurant is, is going to recommend that you share it and not get one for yourself. It's very rare that a restaurant will say, you know, sell you one just for yourself, um, just to upsell you. So um, when you get it in the restaurant, they charge you by the 100 gram unit. So when you see the price on the menu, it'll say, you know, hectogram and it'll say, um, you know, five euro per hectogram or whatever the price is at that restaurant. So I always say, just go ahead and multiply whatever you see by 10. And that's most likely going to be the price of the steak. So we're talking anywhere from 40, 50, up to 80 euro for a steak. So first of all, if you don't like your steak red, don't go there. Like if you don't like the taste of fish or things that are of seafood, don't get caviar just because it's special and people told you you should eat it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So don't get the Florentine steak if you don't like your steak red. Because if you if you order it well done, they're going to kick you out of the restaurant. <laughs> they're not going to do it. Or at least any good restaurant would not serve it to you well done. Because what happens is, is they have to, you know, hang them to, to uh, I guess you could call it dry aging. It's not quite dry aging, but it's softening the meat over time. And it's going to be at least 15 days. But 15 is like the bare minimum to get the steak tender because the traditional Florentine steak is from the Kianina cow, which is a local cow. And it's actually just like a really stressed out cow that has really tough meat. It's a muscular cow. It's a work cow. Um, it's, it's a tough cow. And so the only way to make it tender is to, you know, let it dry, the dry age for at least 15 days. Better would be 30. And that tenderizes the meat enough that it's really pleasant when you eat it. Pretty rare. Okay. So then if you're going to um, go and do that well done after all the work that everyone went through to make it tender, it upsets the locals. And you don't want to do that. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. And you also don't want to take a Roman who has begged you for a Florentine steak, one of my good friends, he, for months, you got to take me for a Fiorentina. I take him to this place. It's famous. I go to the bathroom for five minutes. When I've come back, he has sent it back to be cooked more. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I'm, you know what I mean? And I was, I was embarrassed. <laughs> I was upset. He ruined the steak. It was, it was awful after that. Let's talk about my favorite topic, wine. Uh, Tuscany yes. is world famous mm -hmm. for its wines. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you how do you condense this down into something that, <sighs> that folks can easily digest and understand when they come to Florence? I would say within Tuscany, you've got your Brunello, you've got your Chianti, you've got your Nobile of Montepulciano, and then lesser known, you have uh, Morellino di Scansano, Montecucco. But all of these reds have one thing in common, which is the Sangiovese grape. It's the primary grape of Tuscany. And then you have other reds that are blends, usually, not always, but they can often be a blend and they're often made with French grapes that are grown in Tuscany. And when they're aged in um, the more fancy French style barrique, those are referred to as super Tuscans, not always, but often. And those are the ones that are meant to compete with um, Bordeaux and the, you know, the new world wines that have a lot of oak and things like that, at least back when they started making these. So Tuscany has a lot of red wine. Most of it's made with Sangiovese. Some of it is made with other grapes, often French grapes. I'm generalizing, but that would be my summary of the reds of Tuscany. And then you have a handful of whites. So you've got Vernaccia di San Gimignano, which is a great, fantastic uh, dry white. And then we also have some fantastic Vermentino. Um, would I go to Tuscany seeking out a sparkling wine? No. Would I go to Tuscany seeking out a fantastic full-bodied red? Absolutely. Katie Parla is a Rome-based New York Times best-selling cookbook author, 
a foodie journalist, a culinary guide, an educator, and Emmy-nominated television host. She tells me about one of her favorite lesser-known neighborhoods of Rome. I really love Tor Pignatara, which is in the eastern part of Rome, heading away from the train station towards the Alban Hills, um, which are actually visible in the distance. There's the, there are these spent volcanoes um, about 15 miles outside the city. Torpignatar is not quite 15 miles away. It's it's closer to two and a half miles or so from uh, from the main train station. And it's got a really wonderful trattoria called Osteria Bonelli. It's home to a really thriving South, uh, South Asian population. Um, so it's very culturally diverse. And it is traversed by ancient aqueduct ruins, which cut through uh, several of the public parks in the neighborhood. I just, I absolutely love Tor Pignatara. And it's uh, on the Via Casilina, which is this ancient artery that uh, that slices through a lot of residential districts that aren't so monument heavy, but they have a lot of uh, character. Now talk a little bit about this South Asian population in uh, Tor Pignatara. Where are they from specifically, and do they have places where we can enjoy food? Yeah, all along the Via Casilina um, heading east, um, there are many South Asian uh, groceries and fast food stalls. Um, Rome is a city that has had a lot of immigration from all over the globe since antiquity, Um, and there are uh, quite a number of uh, Bangladeshi um, and uh, and Indian and Pakistani immigrants who are based in those neighborhoods or who travel to those neighborhoods to do commerce, to uh, do food shopping. Um, so there are lots of little takeaway places where you can also get uh, South Asian fast food, which might not be on everyone's culinary radar when they visit Rome, but I always suggest veering out of the uh, carbonara and amatriciana cycle as delicious as it is. <laughs> Right. In order to patronize small businesses that really are a part of Rome's cultural fabric, in spite of not perhaps coming to mind when you think of dining in Italy. That sounds like a great idea. I think I'd love to do that. This brings up the topic, of course, of transplanted cuisine, cuisine that's come from other places, whether it be by immigration or invaders or just via trade routes. Um, now, I'm well aware of the uh, Roman Jewish cuisine, but could you talk about that a little bit? Because it's fascinating to me, um, some of the different dishes that are on offer from the uh, Jews of Rome. Sure. So Rome's uh, Jewish population is fairly small, um, only about 14,000 members of the community, but has this really huge impact on Roman cuisine in general, um, You know, mainly because the first Jews immigrated to Rome in the second century BC, and then um, over the course of centuries, adapted the local ingredients to adhere to um, the religious requ- requirements, um, drawing on a lot of bitter greens and anchovies and uh, poor cuts of meat, and just like a wonderful, delicious array of things. Um, by the Renaissance, artichokes arrive with Spanish. Oh. Uh, Jews or Sephardic Jews coming from uh, South Italy. They were expelled um, uh, in the 1490s um, as South Italy was under Spanish dominion. Right, right. Um, and so it's a very rich population that has so many culinary specialties to offer. The most famous for visitors is probably Carciofi alla Judea, which is a, an artichoke that's 
had its outer leaves pruned and then it's poached in oil to cook it most of the way through. And then it's uh, fried in hotter oil to crisp up the leaves. Mm. Um, and then there are things like concha, which is uh, fried uh, vinegar, marinated zucchini, alichotti indivia, uh, a sort of layered casserole of um, escarole uh, and, uh, and anchovies. Um, but the the community was enriched further with the arrival of a uh, of a diaspora community in the 1960s. Um, the the uh, the last Jews left in Libya were evacuated mainly by the Italian government, and many were settled in Rome as as refugees um, in the Piazza Bologna district, um, which is not you know the 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 historic um, Jewish ghetto, which is most associated with Roman Jewish life. Right, um, and that's right in the center of town. Uh, but it is a neighborhood that is, um, in many ways, more um, sort of contemporarily uh, Jewish in culture, because the Jewish ghetto today is part of the center of Rome. Not many people live there. Um, it's filled with a lot of businesses, but not a lot of sort of residential life. Um, that said, you can go to a number of uh, restaurants and pastry shops in the Jewish ghetto and try uh, Libyan Jewish uh, specialties like. Um, couscous with spicy fish, um, all sorts of like syrup-laced desserts, a lot of things that evoke North Africa um, much more than Rome. Fiorella Squilante is an expert on the food, art, and history of Naples. She talks about what makes Naples special, as well as the surprises in underground Naples. Naples is uh, chaotic, it's busy, it's crazy, but People who travel here, when they come, I mean, they fell in love with the place also because it's not only uh, Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the archaeological area around Vesuvius or the Amalfi Coast, the islands which are in the bay, but obviously, no, the people, no, and the art that makes Naples so special. And that brings up a good point here because I always find Americans especially, they come to Italy— they go to Rome, and then Naples almost becomes a transit point to get to the Amalfi Coast or to get to Mount Vesuvius. And I think this is a huge mistake. This is a huge mistake, but I'm happy to tell you that this was absolutely true. But in the last five, six years, Naples is becoming extremely trendy. And so also many Americans and people from Australia or Canada are now coming. And they love it because, you know, it's a surprise. Uh, while you know what you expect from uh, Venice when you visit uh, Venice, uh, Rome, or Florence, uh, you read about it, you know about it. But while uh, Naples, uh, the reputation of the city is has not been always so good. So people are extremely surprised when they come here and they realize that we live in a wonderful place in what has been the capital of a kingdom for many, many centuries. There must be a reason why we have a great museums, uh, artworks, uh, and uh, an incredible uh, tradition. And then I think what people start to like more and more uh, is that Naples is still the cradle of Italian culture. I mean, the Neapolitan traditions are considered like Italian tradition, because uh, what makes the difference between the historical center of Naples and the historical center of another important art city in Italy, that 
our historical center is still lived by the locals. Sometimes it's still lived by the underclass. So that means it's uh, authentic. Even if I don't like to use this expression, but in a way, it's still real. It's still real. And people love it. And also you turn a corner and behind that decrepit wall, you found a gem. You found an incredible place, like, for example, the San Severo Chapel that uh, I'm sure you heard about. This incredible uh, small museum that still belongs to the descendants of... uh, um, It's one of the most visited monuments in the city. Uh, And is a place uh, wanted by a prince and is a Masonic temple with these uh, incredible uh, Baroque statues uh, uh, carved in the 18th century with this uh, intricate symbology and Masonic meanings uh, that you will need uh, an expert guide or a very good uh, guidebook to to understand it. And it's a gem. Or, for example, you turn a street and you find a chapel where inside there's one of the most beautiful Caravaggio's painting. Uh, I'm referring now to the Piemonte della Misericordia, for example. Or you go underground to one of the many underground areas and you walk down like... Uh, uh, 10 meters, like 33, 35 feet, and you go back 2,500 years. And you walk in a street like a small Pompeii with the bakery, with the laundry, and it's right there in the heart of the city. So people are now understanding. And also Americans, as you were saying, used to stop in Naples just to go to Capri or Sorrento or the Amalfi Coast. And now they like to overnight here. So I think they should stay longer than just overnight. I think uh, at least a week in Naples is is necessary to understand it. That's true. It's a very complex city as well, as you say. So it needs more days to be understood. But some people are spending weeks. eh? And then we have lots of European tourists who like to spend, uh, again, at least uh, six six or seven nights in, uh, in Napoli. So you talked about surprises, Fiorella, and when I visited Naples, um, you mentioned the underground. This was one of the great surprises to me. I did not realize there were all of these catacombs down there. And can can you talk in a little more detail about them? You know, what people see, some of the art, the uh, incredible artwork that you see and everything. The underground, uh, we have several access to the underground. Uh, For example, catacombs, as you said. But we also have this uh, one in particular, which is probably my favorite, which is called the San Lorenzo Maggiore, because it's under the church of San Lorenzo. And is a big section of what was, at the Forum of Neapolis. So Neapolis was founded in the 5th century before Christ in the area that today is one of the streets of the historical center. And just by chance, after the war in the 1950s, this underground area, which is below under a church and its cloister, was rediscovered and was clean from the mud. Because the reason why it's underground is because there was a flood in the 5th century ADE that covered the mud of the area. The mud petrified, so they built on top. And only at the end of the 1980s, this has been opened to the public and is the food market of the city. So to 
talking about food. <laughs> it's a place that, yeah, that I'm always including in the food tours, for example, because if you walk into the cloister of this spectacular Gothic church, beautiful, wanted by uh, the Angevin kings of Naples. So you walk down about 33, 35 feet, and you start your walk on the streets, dating back to the to 2000 years ago, with some elements dating to some blocks of volcanic rock, which are under the Roman level, let's say, referring to the Greek foundation of Neapolis to the 5th century before Christ. And you see the oven perfectly preserved, identical, identical to our pizza oven today. So quite shocking. (laughs) And then you see the laundry and then you see the area of the food market where they used to sell uh, different type of uh, product, different type of food, probably fresh uh, produce or or fish. Being on the sea, Naples has always... uh, uh, had this uh, great tradition of uh, of fish. Then there are other underground areas. For example, another one is the aqueduct of the city. Uh, so those uh, tunnels and tunnels that uh, lead to these uh, very big rooms that once used to be the water systems of uh, the aqueduct and a section of these uh, underground I'm talking about now uh, was the, is a section of a theater, the backstage of a theater dating to the first century BC that was founded literally under the bed of a lady who was living in this uh, one-room apartment, ground floor, in the historical center. So (laughs) it's crazy. The stratification of Naples, I'm always telling people, Naples is a vertical city. And uh, you go down, and there is always a wonderful surprise. Okay, there you go. Naples, Rome, Florence, Venice. You could spend a lifetime exploring these cities and eating all the food they have to offer. I've got links to my guests' websites as well as the full episodes from Monica, Tony, Katie, and Fiorella in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED206. Well, that's about it for this week. Next week, pimento cheese and craft beer in Asheville, North Carolina. Don't miss that. And while you wait for it, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got almost 50 foodie travel guides to cities all over the world, including Naples and Rome, as well as several other cities in Italy. I also post stories regularly on the blog. This week, I wrote a story about a creepy chapel decorated with thousands and thousands and thousands of human bones. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash bone hyphen chapel, or just go to DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. And if you enjoy Destination Eat Drink, please support the cause with a small contribution. Just click on the contribute button at DestinationEatDrink.com. And thank you very, very much. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and the mighty Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.